peace to you under the cross of Jesus, friends. Amen. What kind of messages should I share when I stand up here? What should my tone be? What thoughts should I convey? I could stand up here in front of you and do a pep rally each week. I could get you all excited and motivated to, to go out, to make a difference, to, to touch some lives. Maybe that would be a good use of my time and of yours. I could also stand up here and make you feel good about yourselves, good about the things you do. I could blast the people who aren't in these seats for all the ways they aren't as good as you. I could make you feel validated. Maybe that would be a good use of my time and of yours. We all need an attaboy, right? These are two options. I could stand up here and tell you about all the things that you can do, go get it. Or I could stand up here and tell you about the, all the things that you are doing, which everyone else should be doing. But if you've heard me preach, though, you should know by now, that's not what I get up here and do. I get up here and I preach what we call the law. I don't get up here and talk about things that you can do, let's go! I don't get up here and talk about the things that you are doing, good for you. I talk about what you should and don't do. I talk about imperfection and malice and failure. I talk about sin. Why? Why do I do this? Uh, more interesting question. Why do you come in here? Why did you come tonight to speak such words as, have mercy, Lord, and to hear me say things like, you are dust, and to dust you will return as I paint ashen crosses on your heads? Honestly, I can't ultimately say why you came to hear it. Maybe you thought Ash Wednesday sounded like an interesting custom. Well, it is. Or maybe church is just such an ingrained habit for you that you could hardly imagine not being here if there was a service going on. As for the why I'm here, the why behind my preaching the law, it's for one particular reason. I need to remind you, and I need to be reminded, that one day we will die. I don't know how you'll die, or when. I don't know that about myself, let alone anyone else, but I know that we will. I don't have to be your doctor who knows your cholesterol counts and your family medical history to be able to say it. We're going to die. But what does death have to do with the law? Well, the law forces us to confront death. It does this in two ways. One, if you believe that there is indeed a God, a holy and transcendent being who serves as the ultimate arbiter of good and evil, then the law, the message about what is good and what is evil, it should make you aware of your guilt before such a being who holds the power of life and death. Two, even if you're not entirely on board with the existence of a God, the law forces you to think about death as it points out to you your failures. Consider the words we spoke in our confession earlier. We confess to you, Lord, the pride, hypocrisy, and impatience in our lives. We're echoing Jesus' words there from Matthew. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? We should hear such words and think over the conversations we have at work, bemoaning a coworker who wasn't pulling their weight in our eyes. Has no one ever had to pick up the slack for you? We confess to you, O oh Lord, our manipulation of others, and our anger when our selfish aims are denied, how easy it is to treat other humans as objects, to make every interaction about ourselves, our opinions, our experiences, every other person looking to us 
like nothing more than an empty jar into which we get to pour our frustrations, our sadnesses, and the anger we can feel when that jar talks back to us, right? dares to try and take the focus in a conversation off me, me, me. False judgments, uncharitable thoughts toward others, prejudice and contempt for those who differ from us. Wicked, wicked arrogance when we imagine that we alone see the world as it truly is, and we sneer down our noses at all those who seem so uninformed in our eyes. A kind of filthy presumption by which we convince ourselves that we are wiser and more righteous than others. Do not judge, or you too will be judged, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. It's where the law ought to lead us to see our own death. All the pep rallying and back patting I could do for you won't take away the reality which the law speaks to you, which is this. You have no control over the legacy you will leave here. All the good you may try and do while you're still above the ground may be forgotten once you're six feet under it. Perhaps all that will be remembered of you is hypocrisy, or anger, or a lack of compassion and grace. Did you know that people are far more likely to remember a negative event accurately than a positive event? You may hold the door open for someone at the store, they may smile, they may thank you, they may appreciate what you did, but the only person who will remember you from that day is the cashier whom you give a hard time over ringing up your purchase incorrectly. How's that for a legacy? So look at the law tonight and let it speak to you about the reality of your death. You can't escape it. You can't avoid the consequences of your failure to comply with it. Your transgressions, your acts of malice or thoughtlessness will live on longer than you will, you walking dirt heap. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return. It's the message of the law to you, and we need that message, because too easily we think we can solve this problem, the problem of death, with pep talks and back padding. Pep talks make us think we can approach death with confidence and poise so long as we get moving on doing the right things here right now. Backpats make us feel comfortable now and they get our eyes off the reality of death. And both of those things become meaningless in the actual face of death. The pep rallies will never lead us to have done enough when we look back on our lives. The backpatting we'll see was nothing but wishful thinking. If you fill up your life now with backpats and pep rallies, you will come to the end and realize that you weren't actually all that special. You didn't really do all that much. So let the law do something else for you as it speaks to you about your death. Let it drive you to look outside of yourself, not to find something else you can do, not to compare yourself with others, but to find a totally different answer to this problem. We read a selection from 2 Corinthians earlier, and in that selection the Apostle Paul said this, If I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while, yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. See, the Apostle Paul was a pastor, and he wrote those words to a church he served. 2 Corinthians, the, the book that those words come from in the Bible, is essentially a really long sermon to them. 
It's called 2 Corinthians because there is a 1 Corinthians, another message he shared with them. And 1 Corinthians is, in a number of places, a, a brutal message. He calls them out on so many things. They were uncaring and loveless toward one another. They were divided and prideful. They cared more about their own status than about serving their brothers and sisters. What a group to serve as a pastor. And Paul, in his first letter to them, doesn't hold back. Here's a couple of lines from that first letter. You are still worldly, since there is jealousy and quarreling among you. What makes you different from anybody else? Is there anything you have that isn't a gift? And it is, if it is a gift, why do you boast as if it isn't, as if you earned it? Harsh words. True words. Paul had a reason for saying them. For causing his congregation sorrow through them. Your sorrow led you to repentance. He says, preaching the law to them, sharing with them a message that was not a pep rally, was not backpatting, caused them to repent. What does repent mean? Well, we probably all hear that and understand kind of a simple definition, right? To repent is to stop doing something we found out is wrong. And that is a good thing. We should, when we are shown a wrong behavior, cease and desist. Paul says that there's something particular to the kind of repentance he wants them to experience. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. There's a godly sorrow and there is a worldly sorrow. A worldly sorrow is the kind of sorrow we would have at the end of life, looking at death, if all we know is that we have fallen short. We didn't do enough good. We weren't special enough. And we can try and shove down that kind of sorrow. We can try and convince ourselves right now that we won't feel that way when we come near death. I wouldn't gamble on it, though. So instead, Paul wanted these people whom he loved to feel a godly sorrow. A sorrow that doesn't end in looking at ourselves and our deeds in the face of death. A sorrow that acknowledges those things, a sorrow that recognizes that I ought to see my own shortcomings. But a sorrow which then causes me to turn outside of myself for an answer, not to my own deeds, not to the legacy I hope to leave behind, but to Jesus. Jesus, who alone in all of history could look back on his life without regret. Jesus, who alone in all of history did not deserve to die. Jesus, who nonetheless did die on your behalf, the innocent for the guilty. See, our first song expressed these ideas beautifully. I, a sinner, come to you with a penitent confession. Savior, show me mercy too. Grant for all my sins remission. Let these words my soul relieve. Jesus, sinners, does receive. Amen.